From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, have you heard this Danish proverb that says something like, it's difficult to make predictions, especially when they're about the future? <laughs> yes, yeah, so true. Is this the kind of thing you think about when doing MGI research on technology topics like, I don't know, AI or Internet of Things? Yeah, I think a lot about that. Uh, you know, a lot of people have heard me say about our research, you know, we're really looking at scenarios or potential, but oftentimes people want a definitive answer about, you know, will this technology be a big deal or, you know, when will its adoption really accelerate? When actually what really matters when making decisions about what are the factors that could lead to one set of outcomes or another? But these are the kinds of questions that today's guest has been grappling with for years. Benedict Evans is an independent technology analyst with a huge following, and he talks about how he thinks about whether technology might end up as a niche product or something that everybody uses. We also discuss some hot-button tech topics of today, including crypto, Web3, and the impact of regulation on technology. Yeah, I mean, some of those things I just find impenetrable, but also absolutely fascinating. And I know that I need to learn more about them. So I'm really fascinated to hear this chat. Benedict, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd just love to start with a little bit about your story, your journey to where you are today. Um, you have a newsletter, if I recall correctly, with about over 170,000 subscribers, for instance. Something like that, yeah. But I don't know. Well, you know, what's, what's that, that joke? You know, life is what happens when you're making plans. So I read history at university, went into investment banking as a sell-side equity analyst in the dot-com bubble. So for sort of six months, I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. And, and then it kind of wasn't. And that whole industry doesn't really exist anymore or not in anything like the same way. And then I worked doing sort of various strategy roles in media and telecoms companies, worked for a boutique consultancy in London for a few years, and then went to Andreessen Horowitz at the beginning of 2014, which is a big Silicon Valley venture firm with now sort of $20 billion or so, something under management, and was there until the end of 2019, working at software companies and internet companies and sort of technology startups of various kinds. And then at the beginning of 2020, sort of moved back to London to do my own thing. So I do various sort of things where I try and explain what's going on, which is sometimes publishing, sometimes talking to people, sometimes presenting. I'm curious, so you talked about studying history, and now you're mostly known for your work analyzing technology. I'd also love to just get your perspective on, even the word history is backward looking in time, but a lot of the work that you do is meant to have implications for how things look going forward. Mm. How, how do you how do you bridge that ways those ways of thinking? Well, there's always sort of patterns in technology. I mean, there are patterns in in any sort of you know these kinds of analyses. Technology, of course, the patterns happen quickly. You know, it's like studying fruit flies instead of studying elephants. I suppose you know you get the generations pretty fast, as opposed to I don't know. A few years ago, I met the CEO of a giant utility company, a giant water company, and they said, uh, you know, I think maybe innovation is one of our top five priorities this year. Which sort of you know so, sounds you know sounds insane until you think yes, but this is a water com this is a water company. You know, that might be an entirely sensible way of thinking about stuff like this. Probably other stuff that's more important than innovation. If you're, you know, running a utility company like holes in the ground and you know, price regulation and stuff. 
Whereas in, you know, technology, you know, you have these sort of, so in the last sort of 50 years, we've had these generational shifts every 15 years or so, you know, mainframes and PCs and the web and smartphones. And, you know, there's a lot of value to kind of looking and seeing, well, so how is this, how did, what happened the last time this happened? How has this evolved? And how might it happen differently? Of course, the challenge is, you know, it's a great line by Hugh Trevor Roper that history teaches us nothing except that something will happen. So, you know, there's a sort of, there's a, there's a narrative that says that the Bolsheviks were, you know, extremely interested in looking at all the failed revolutions of the 19th century and trying to learn, well, why did this happen? And why did 1848 fail? And why did, you know, the commune fail? And so on. And we have to learn the lessons of this. And the important lesson that they took is you have to be really careful of sort of successful military generals, because they might turn into Bonaparte and make themselves emperor. So they're really suspicious of Trotsky and don't pay any attention to Stalin, who, of course, shoots them all. I mean, it's like, the, you know, the thing that, you know, economists say that, you know, all models are wrong, but they're all useful. Um, so you can over index on, on learning these lessons. You know, people looked at the iPhone and said, well, we know what happened with the Mac versus Windows and Apple's going to be destroyed. And that was the wrong lesson. And you should have looked at another aspect of what was happening in the 80s. So you have to be, you have to be careful about what you're looking at, but it's, it's tremendously useful just to think about well, what patterns are there and how have those patterns evolved and what might happen now. You know, we all, you know, very kind of current example Everyone in the tech industry looks at cars and says, this is going to play out like the iPhone versus all the old phone makers. It's going to play out like the iPhone versus Nokia. You know, all these dumb old phone companies that thought they could just hire software people and you know, they're going to get crushed. Maybe, but that's not necessarily what's going to happen. It may not play out like that. It may be, I mean, this is the kind of the elemental question for Tesla. Is te- you know, Tesla bulls think it's a software company and Tesla bears think, no, it's a car company. So it might play out like that. It might not. You know, you, you kind of look at those lessons and, and you draw perspectives, but then the hard part is working out, well, which one? I would love to come back to how you think about what you do and how the others might think about you know, understanding it as well. But maybe we can touch on a few actual examples. You've come up with a few, you've mentioned a few already. Um, these fruit flies, as you might say, which are, you know, evolving very quickly in, in technology. Um, let's start with one that's very current. We're, we're uh, recording this um, in February of 2022. The word metaverse has come up many times in, mm. in the dialogue. And how about I just raise the word and, and get your reflections on what you see there so different different ways to, talk, to think about this stuff. This is, you know, immediately I'm going to go to a historical analogy because I it, the metaverse thing reminds me a bit of information superhighway, which is a little bit before my time. You know, I was still, you know, a teenager when that was the thing. And sort of information superhighway is this sort of early 90s thing, which is basically people have worked out that, that computers might be like a lot of people, like maybe, maybe, maybe like a lot of people are going to have computers. And there's all this stuff that means they're turning from being these kind of boring boxes with green screens that do accounting. Um, and there's all this stuff happening and they're probably going to get connected to networks and they're probably going to have like, like consumer information on them. And so you get a whiteboard and you write words on the whiteboard and you write like graphical user interfaces. Cause that was like a exciting new idea and you know multimedia and convergence and broadband and fiber and probably virtual reality as well and cd-roms and color screens and you'd write them all on the whiteboard and you then you'd call this information superhighway and who's going to build this well like Bertelsmann and Viacom and the New York Times company and it kind of didn't work out like that but we kind of got most of the stuff that was on the whiteboard just not like that 
And the same thing now with metaverse, like you write a whole bunch of words on a whiteboard. So you write kind of games and virtual reality and AR and popular culture and self-expression and maybe NFTs and Web3 as well, maybe, and augmented reality and glasses and 3D and you write on spatial internet and you write all this stuff on the board. And then you call it metaverse. And then you have these weird conversations like, so is the Facebook metaverse going to be compatible with the Google metaverse? Which to me is like saying, you know, is the Facebook mobile internet going to be compatible with the Google mobile internet? Like, I don't understand what that question means. And some of that will probably happen. Some of it won't, maybe, maybe not. I mean, there is a bit more of a kind of a binary question around metaverse in that we don't quite know whether... If you make it very, very tangible, the kind of the core is, right, are we all going to be using VR or AR or something? We're going to be wearing some fundamental new kind of screen that is much more about placing stuff into the world or placing you in a world or much more 3D or immersive or something. And there's one argument that says, look, another 10 years of Moore's law and virtual reality will be this transformative experience that everybody uses. And maybe it will maybe it'll be passed through, maybe you'll put it on and you'll look through it into the real world. And equally, maybe somebody will solve AR optics and you'll be able to wear a pair of glasses that can place something in the world that looks like it's there and that works in daylight outdoors in a cafe with a broad field of view and looks like a pair of glasses, not, you know, like a headset. And it's just engineering in time, basically. And, you know, give it five to ten years and everyone will do this, which is sort of what took us from black and white WAP phones to iPhones. You know, basically ten years of Moore's Law. And, you know, in 2006, like someone was going to do that if it wasn't Apple. Something like that was clearly going to happen. The counter argument is to say this is a bit more like games consoles in that it doesn't matter how much Moore's Law you give to a games console. It's still basically a niche device and sort of 200 million people have a games console, which is smaller than Snapchat. And whereas 5 billion people have a smartphone and it doesn't matter how amazingly cool VR, um, a games console, it's still basically not a universal device. And you could kind of extend this and say, like, it doesn't matter how cool drones are. We all got one for Christmas a couple of years ago. By four days later, guess what? It's in the closet. Like, okay, I've seen the roof of my house now. Now what do I do? You buy a 3D printer, many few of you, maybe you got a 3D printer. Okay, I made a little Lego Eiffel Tower. It's kind of cool. Now what do I do with it? And that's kind of that. So... There's this sort of technology determinism, which also sort of applies a bit to Web3, which is to say, look, smartphones, PCs, the internet, cars, aircraft, it starts out looking like a toy and it gets better. The question is, okay, yes, it probably gets better, although there may be reasons why it doesn't, which is, you know, another interesting conversation. Not everything gets better. Sometimes stuff is just stuck. It can't get better. Like, we don't have flying cars yet. But if it gets better, okay, what does that mean? Is that everybody? Is that a universal product? Is that always this, like, some kind of niche device? Sometimes, you know, it's like the, 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 my math teacher at school blew my mind by saying there's all sorts of different sizes of infinity. And there can be all sorts of different sizes of success. Like, maybe it works and no one cares. And so this is sort of the metaverse question. is like, if everybody had VR and it worked and we were using it all day, every day, well, what would that be? And you can make your list of stuff of what that would look like, like games, pop culture, self-expression, identity, spatial internet. Maybe, yeah. Maybe not. Why is it not old wine in new bottles in the sense that people have talked about VR before? Is it because of the addition of all of the other... It's undefined, right? But is it the addition of all the other things that you mentioned? 
which, which well, uh, so so we tried to do VR in the early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, and at that point, the, the technology, the hardware was good enough to show that this would be cool if we had vastly better hardware, but it was not good enough to actually do anything. You know, you're basically still wearing a CRT, and you've got like a fifty thousand dollar graphics workstation to power the thing, and it's still kind of crap. And so we basically put it aside for thirty years and and came back, and then you know, sort of. You know, getting on for 10 years ago now, people kind of realized, hang on a second, with the screens, the flat panel screens and the smartphone chips we have now, this would kind of work now. So the gyroscopes and the screens and the cameras and so on that lets you do the sensing. And here we are sort of 10 years later and the Oculus Quest 2 is a great product. It's still sort of a smartphone game kind of a product rather than a PlayStation 5 game kind of a product. But if you... Put on an Oculus Quest 2, you don't say, well, it'll get better. It's a prototype. You don't have to make allowances for it. It's a great product. The question is, what do you do with it? And then the opinion divides. So there are some people who would say, you know, another five years of effort and Moore's Law, put our shoulder to the wheel, it'll pop out into a great product, which is sort of, as I said, sort of where we were with smartphones in the mid-2000s. Like, you know, clearly the iPhone, the BlackBerry and Windows Phone and so on were not like the end point, but we were clearly on the way there. And to extend the analogy, like VR in the 90s was sort of like general magic in the mid-90s. Like it was just great idea. It's just we just can't build that yet. Counter-argument is no, you need another 30 years of Moore's Law before this is any before everybody will use this. And even then, maybe nobody we won't all use it. Maybe we'll just go straight to brain implants. How would we figure out which it's going to be? If it's going to be a game console or 3D TVs? where it's, as you described it, you know, even a 200 million shipment, you know, niche product versus, as you described it, a universal product. I don't think these, I don't think these are questions you can know. You know yes, this will get faster. What's more difficult is to say, okay, if it got faster and everybody could have it, what would that mean? Would everybody want that? And it's, so, you know, you know, people always trade these kind of axioms around, you know, so it's like the Henry Ford line. If I asked people what they wanted, they'd have said faster car, faster horses. You go back and read Brave New World, Brave New World, everybody has a personal VTOL airplane. Yeah. Everybody flies around. So, and that's, you know, in the, the 20s and 30s, people didn't, you know, everyone, you could you could see that planes were going to be a big deal. Uh, you could see they were going to get faster and, you know, reliable and, you know, everyone could fly, but you didn't really understand what that would mean. You know, and, you know, there's no, you know, people still thought that airliners, people thought airships would be a thing and didn't understand what will happen is the aircraft will get big and fast and there'll be a 500 seat airplane, but no one will have their own airplane. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of classic sci-fi problem. My grandfather wrote science fiction. He's um, quite a successful, famous science fiction writer in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s. And I have a cover of one of his novels, which is about like the terraforming of a planet. An essential plot point is that the planet gets sort of forgotten halfway through the process because they take they move the terraforming office to a different planet and an index of paper card files is knocked over and the card file for that planet like slides under a table and gets lost. <laughs> so like, we've got faster than light interstellar travel, but we're storing stuff on card files. And navigating with slide, you know, the starship, you, play, you, buy, you have interstellar travel, but you have to queue up to buy a paper ticket. So we never, it's always hard to like predict the axes of this stuff. Indeed. Speaking of predicting axes that are difficult, you know, you've been involved in a, a lot of thinking and discussions about crypto, Web3, 
for folks who are listening who don't know what all these things are, so what what are people talking about? And you know, what conclusions have you come to? I'll give you three bullet points. In fact, I'll give you three sets of three bullet points. And so the first is that, like the first wave of, of crypto is, well, so go back a second. So this is a great quote of Voltaire where he says um, that the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, which was, which was true. And it wasn't any of those things. Cryptocurrency is not cryptography and it's not a currency or not only a currency. It's not secret which is what people sort of understand by crypto. It's not secret. It's not only a currency. When Then you get this phrase, distributed ledger, which sort of implies it's a database, and it's not really a database. If you say Bitcoin, then you're ignoring all the other stuff that get pilled. So like, it's really hard to work out what you should call this thing. Just to pause, and why is it not a database? Because, well, let me come back to that. So I'll okay. sort of explain why. So... So the first wave of crypto, for want of a better term, is to say, well, this is a way of moving money around. It's an asset. It's a digital asset. It's a bearer currency of some kind. If we agree that a Bitcoin is worth something, then you can move them around on this public database. Uh, but it's a public database, which is important. It's not just a database. It's a public, trusted, distributed, trustless distributed database. You don't need to trust that a particular third party will do the right thing. It's a kind of a mechanistic system, so they, you know, no one has a choice. So it's sort of digital gold, or it's digital bearer bonds, or something like that. And that's crypto one. Crypto two is people say, well, what if you could put software on a blockchain? What if you could put sort of basic scripting on a blockchain? That software, because it's running on this trustless environment where no one can change anything without permission, that's basically a contract. So the software has become a contract, which gets you this phrase, a smart contract. And so you could lend money and be paid. And the payment would be mechanistic rather than, you know, based on, you know, people doing what's doing what they'd agreed. And so that gets you DeFi. So this is sort of crypto two is distributed finance. So you could build a lending application on this. Crypto three is people say, well, hang on a second. If we can program this, why do we only have to program money? You could make Instagram on this. You could make Twitter on this. You could build Spotify on this. Like you could build actual software on this thing. And so at that point, you're saying, well, what is a blockchain? Well, it's a sort of distributed, decentralized, community-based computing system that has trust, incentives, contracts, structure, ownership, portability built in. And my third list of three bullet points, this is also sort of another wave of open source at this point. Because, you know, original open source back in the 90s, some radical, very religious idea, anyone can write the software, the software is written as a sort of distributed open community project rather than inside a company. Lots of people think this is absolutely insane. Turns out it takes over the tech industry. But what actually happens, sort of the second phase, is actually all of that software is deployed inside big companies and inside Google. So you can't actually see the code. I mean, technically you could download it, but you can't see what Google or Facebook are doing with it. Crypto, blockchain, is an open source computer, but the code is open as it's running. So it's not just that you could get the code, it's that you can see the code as it's running. So you have this sort of open source, distributed, collaborative, trustless computing platform, which is a data store, is a way you could write software, is a way you can communicate that has incentives and payment and ownership built into it. So that's my sort of three, and that's why you would call it Web3, because the original web was, you know, Yahoo and the New York Times.com. Company runs website, writes stuff for website. You have a website of your own, you have a personal website, you control it. Web two 
which is a Web 2.0 is this very influential essay by Tim O'Reilly said, look, all the stuff that's happening in the mid 2000s is the users are creating the content. So that's Yelp, TripAdvisor, Flickr, Delicious, Google, um, um, YouTube, Instagram, MySpace, all of these things. So Instagram came later, but you know, all of these things where the users create the content and you have, and it, maybe it's just content, but it might be reviews, it might be votes, but it's still controlled by a company. And so then Web3 is, well, if you were to build Yelp or TripAdvisor or Twitter on a blockchain, then the users would control it as well. And instead of all the value going to the shareholders and the company, the value would go to the users. So those are, that's my sort of, you know, those first of all is what was Web 1, Web 2, 1, 3. Secondly, what was, you know, crypto 1, 2, and 3. Then what's open source 1, 2, and 3. And so this gets you this kind of very intoxicating, very messianic, very religious vision that you could completely remake the whole internet on this entirely new platform. It's just as religious as, of course, the early internet was and early open source was. Early open source people thought they were going to destroy Microsoft and no one would ever write, buy software again. And, you know, early internet people thought that this was the end of government and there'd be no war again because everyone would understand each other. And, of course, the crazy ideology fall kind of falls away, but open source like runs the whole tech industry. Um, the challenge is, you know, take all that ideology and say, okay, how is it that we take this from this very early, very rough, very interesting technology and make it into something that you can actually build like production software on? And we're like kind of five years away from building all of that. And the second challenge is as you do that and you create all of that infrastructure and all of those sort of abstraction layers on top, how do you do that without removing the whole point that it's decentralized? Because it would be very easy to make all this stuff work really well if you just moved it into your own data center and controlled it. But then, like, what would be the point? You've just described SAP. So the challenge is, like, how do you make Twitter on a blockchain without you having to know all of these acronyms? But how do you remove the acronyms without doing that by just making another centralized piece of software with one company or one group in control. And that's sort of the puzzle I wrestle with. We've got this sort of explosion of complexity and sophistication. And so somebody I know said that like, or in, in tech said like, all the dumbest people and all the cleverest people I know are all in on Web3. Because you have this sort of wave of noise, of bullshit, of argument, of people saying it's all a Ponzi scheme on the one side, on the other, of people saying this is going to end government and gold and, you know, I need this in case the government steals my money and I need to move to Singapore and, you know, it's going to end trade. All trade unions will be built on the blockchain. So there's all sorts of just kind of an enormous amount of noise that you have to kind of try and pull apart and work out like, yes, but behind all of that noise... There's this very, very powerful, interesting technology that lets you build internet applications, lets you build software in a different way. But right now we don't have that. We just have a lot of people building stuff that will let us have that in like five years. If I'm hearing you correctly, a key tenet of the theology behind Web3 is the value of decentralization, not having... Mm. Is that is that fair as a yeah. way to think about why yeah. people are messianic about it? Who cares or wants that? I've, I've I saw you post something about any any consumer product that requires you to write lines of code is is going to be challenging in its adoption. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, there is a, there's a strand of religion within tech, of course, that says, no, 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 consumers have to learn. And so people hated GUIs and they hated the web and those people hated the iPhone. No, 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 you should have to learn. And of course, well, great, you can, you can do that, but that's not actually what's going to happen. I think the challenge here is that this is an architecture that allows you to build different kinds of product. And there's two slightly different parts to this. So one of them is open source didn't exactly let you build software you couldn't build before. It was just a, turned out to be a better way of getting the, the software written. And then Apple could go and take the software and use it themselves and they contribute to it. But you didn't need to know that it was open source. You weren't using it because it was open source. It was just a better model for producing open source. It's a bit like capitalism. You know, there's a moral question around capitalism and then there's an efficiency question around capitalism. It turns out a free market is just a better way to organize economic activity than central planning. It's just, it might be immoral, but it's just functionally, it works better. So that's one side, is, is, is open source just tended to be a better way of making software. And this gets also to kind of questions of a sort of, you know, should you have an open ecosystem or a closed ecosystem? And the other side of that is, does this actually let you make a different kind of software that you couldn't make before? And of course, this is inherent to the web or the internet. You know, go back to what I was saying about sort of the information superhighway. Like, this is like the breakthrough of the web was effectively that you get this phrase permissionless innovation, that anybody can just make stuff and distribute it instantly to everybody on earth and you don't need to get like a carriage deal with every telco in every country you know you don't need to get a distribution deal you don't need to go and talk to a publishing company so that to get to have for people to use your product in that country and so what the you know the internet did you could say it sort of expanded the massively expanded the scope of the free market because you know you could you know by an by analogy you could say that the telcos and publishing companies and so on were sort of central planning you know that they were this sort of massive bottleneck on what what you could do. I'm curious if I, if I just step back a moment. We started the conversation a little bit about how you do what you do. You've described yourself as as uh, trying to work out which questions to ask. How do you work out which questions to ask about tech? I'm trying to think about this. It's an observation I made, a sort of joke that, you know, the moment you understand something in tech is generally the point that you should stop paying attention to it because it's like it's become boring and it's like it's become well understood. It's my kind of my fruit fly point. Like, you know, you, you could know about cars. Cars were a big deal for a long time. You know, PCs were a big deal for like 15 years. And then, you know, smartphones now, like the bizarre thing about all the Apple App Store court cases is that we had all these arguments in 2010 or 2011 or 2011 probably like like i could like find the stuff i wrote as an analyst in 2011 and just republish it like it's all the same questions but you just have to keep moving and you have to say right i'm not going to be the voip guy anymore because voip happened it's not interesting in any way anymore i'm not going to be the smartphone person anymore because it happened like we were get five we said everyone's going to get connected and we did like so now what and so you have to kind of push to the next question. I think the other side is, you know, for me personally, you know, I'm not a research group. I'm one person. And so I kind of have to make a decision, you know, it, it, are there places in that field where I'm going to be able to ask and answer the kinds of questions that I'm good at asking? asking? Is it worth me investing three months or four months of my time to get to the point that I know what everybody knows? So I kind of have to ask myself, am I, if, if I do that, am I going to be able to say anything that people don't in this field don't know? 
And is anyone else, of course, going to care? So, you know, I could make a decision. Do I, you know, how deep should I dig into games? How deep should I dig into ad tech? If I could sidebar for a moment, you know, last year, your big annual presentation, you, there's a section that says tech becomes a regulated industry. Is mm. that still your view? Has it changed? Or are you saying certain parts of tech are, are becoming regulated? Well, so the the sort of the analogy that I use here often is that when we say, you know, any this uh, two steps to this. So first of all, like every company is subject to general legislation. If 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 you kill somebody in office, you don't get you don't get like arrested by the, the consultancy regulator. You know, you just get arrested by the police. But then, like particular industries have a very complex, specific issues that require specific regulation, like railways or food production or chemical refining or banking or cars. Like the specific rules about how you make a car, specific rules about how you construct your bank. And I think, in a general sense, technology is going to be a quote-unquote regulated industry in that sense. The problem is, if you then dig into, well, what does it mean when we say regulate cars and think about that for a minute? Like, well, hang on. You know, we regulate, we tell General Motors to put airbags and seatbelts in the car, but that's got nothing to do with building light rail or how our tax policy accounts for building single family homes versus apartment buildings near railway stations. You know, it's got nothing to do with teenage boys getting drunk and driving too fast. It's got nothing to do with should we build more cycle lanes or not and how should we fund that? And so if you actually think about how the world of policy has reacted to cars in the last 50 years, that's like 30 different questions. And some of those are antitrust. Some of those are regulation of actual car companies. Some of them are laws about how we drive that have got nothing to do with car companies. Some of them are about tax or urban planning, criminal law. There's lots of different things in there. And they're mostly kind of complicated and full of trade-offs. And the, you know, the, the, the difference, perhaps, is that you know we grew up with cars. Like It took 75 years to put seatbelts in cars. And so if a politician says we are going to introduce legislation that makes big Detroit produce cars that cannot crash and gasoline that can't burn. And we know that technology exists and we're going to make them do it, otherwise we'll send them to prison or find them. Like We would all understand, like, you're a moron. <laughs> you're asking them to invent new physics. Like That's not on the list of options. Whereas in technology, I think, you know, A, tech policy is just as hard as transport policy or education policy or health policy or anything else. But we don't have that sort of innate understanding of what's the difference between they don't want to do that and that would be a terrible idea and this is why and no, you're just asking for new maths. And that's sort of the challenge that I think we have in in looking at the regulation of technology. Now, obviously, you know, this could be an hour-long conversation because deep kind of profound intellectual questions about how we think about free speech online because, you know, online is not a bar or a living room or private conversation, nor a newspaper. And the world outside America does not have the First Amendment and is entirely happy to pass laws about speech. But but, but what speech and what does that mean? Um, there's all sorts of interesting questions in competition law. How do you handle mergers at this in an industry that happens this quickly, that changes this quickly? You know, you can't, how do you, you, know, you can't spend five years doing the study, but also you can't just like kind of guess in advance how the industry is going to evolve. How do you handle that? How do you reconcile privacy versus competition? The privacy regulator says, make it really hard to export data. And the competition regulator says, make it easy to export data. And like the engineers at Instagram or YouTube are like, well, we're engineers, we can do either, but you're going to have to kind of going to have to choose. 
And so all of that is to say, like, yeah, yes, regulation, but like, that's not one thing. That's like 50 things. So I know that uh, we could go on, as you said, for for a long time on any one of these topics and f- very many more. But maybe if I, if we could, if you would allow me to do a lightning round of quick questions, quick answers, you can feel free to pass if any of them are uh, you you choose to. Sure. Uh, all right, here we go. What is your favorite source of data that informs your thinking about tech? Ooh, I don't think I have a good answer to that. I mean, I'm on Twitter a lot, probably too much. And then I am relentlessly curious. I think the real answer is Google, that I sit and I think, I I wonder what the answer to that question is. And you will discover that the answer might come up in 30 seconds and there's the perfect chart, or it might take you an hour, or you might discover that that data just isn't there at all. And you can never tell in advance. But, you know, the joy of the internet, you know, if I want to know what... um, I don't know, distribution of GDP in China between large and small cities has been over the last 30 years. There I are. There's a great 200-page McKinsey study or Goldman Sachs study or World Bank study. Like, wow, okay. There it is. What is the most overhyped technology trend? So I I would have to say Web3, but it's also potentially very underhyped. You know, there is, I can't think of a technology in my career with this polarizing inside tech that had that many kind of deeply respected, senior, very intelligent people in tech who think this is nonsense and people who think, no, this is the whole future of how the internet's going to get built. You might have just answered it, but just in case you have a different answer, what's the most overlooked technology trend? The... Well, not the answer, but an answer. I'm, I'm sort of, I've been intrigued by this phrase, digital transformation, because it sounds like a slogan you would see on a billboard in an airport for an enterprise software company, you know, or an outsourcing company or something. What it actually means is that in the sort of the 70s and 80s, big companies bought mainframes, and in the 80s and 90s, they bought PCs and Oracle and SAP and client server and Windows, and now they're going to the cloud. And that's a sort of a 20, you know, there's a generational change and it happens sort of 20 years to make that transition. You know, IBM's mainframe base is still growing, believe it or not. And when you do that, like you change how the whole company works. Is you know, when you went from adding machines to mainframes, like you didn't just like change the infrastructure, you changed how the company worked. When you went to Oracle, you changed how the whole company worked and how, the, how what you could do and how you could run that business. And that gets you just in time supply chains and everything else that comes with that. And as we go to the cloud, you have like an order of magnitude more software in a company because it's so much easier to have new software. And you have bring, that brings machine learning and data and all kinds of new workflows and things. And it's like, it's incredibly boring if you're trying to write for a newspaper or write about this stuff, like it's a chart of enterprise software, like we've just fallen asleep, but it just changes how like the economy works, you know, in the way that, I mean, like you know, somebody wrote, people, like, there's this whole thing for writing books about shipping containers. Like they're really, really boring, but they change the world. And it's kind of the same with like SQL. It's like, it's really, really boring, but it changed the world. And I think like digital transformation or SaaS or cloud, again, it's like, it's, it's really, really boring. But it's kind of a big deal as well. What worries you most about the evolution of technology going forward? I know I'm very sanguine about this kind of stuff. I think there are always moral panics. There are always problems. You know, the core problem with the internet is that we connected everybody. And unfortunately, that meant we connected all the bad people and all the problems and all of our worst instincts. But, you know, in general, 
despite being a sort of Burkean conservative, I do tend to believe in progress. The world does tend to get better um, as long as we don't screw it up. What excites you most about the evolution of technology? I think the most exciting thing is seeing some new company or some new product that solves some problem that never would have occurred to you existed. And you look at it and you're like, oh, wow, that's fantastically cool. This is such a great solution to some problem that you'd never realized or never seen. What's um, the last what time that happened to you? The one I talk about a fair bit because I, you know, I use it as a case study is a company called Frame.io, which I saw a while ago, but it's just front of mind. Basically, if you're professionals working on a piece of video, then there's one person who edit it and 50 people who need to see it. And so that's email threads and private Vimeo links and a Google sheet with lots of comments and time codes and version tracking and FedEx hard disks. And Frame.io takes it into a website. It's basically Google Docs for video. You can't edit it, actually edit it, but everything else. And so you can just scribble on that frame and say, this needs to get fixed. And you kind of look at it and you think, that's just a giant... It's like, this, you know, if you've ever seen the people who created um, VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet. And they're showing it to people and they're like, people are looking at it and saying, your 30 second demo is a week of my life. Take my money now. I don't care what it costs, take my money. It's like magic paper, they call it. And over and over again, people do that. They take something that's weeks of people's lives. And it's just, that's just a button that's just fixed that. And people go, wow. Which company is the most interesting to track to understand how tech will evolve? Tricky. I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. You know, Apple points to one way that tech evolves, Google to a very different way that technology sort of evolves. It evolves. Facebook is sort of surfs popular culture and consumer behavior. Amazon is an organizational miracle. You know, it's a machine that makes more, more makes more makes more Amazon. I think there's a lot of people who are just sort of climbing the mountain from different sides. What would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing today? If, if I wasn't doing what I do for a living, I don't know. Um, I might have been an academic. I might have run a bookshop. I might have gone and done something else. I tend to be think I'm probably institutionally challenged. So I doubt I'd be somewhere inside a big company. Um, I'm, I'm too easily bored and too impatient. But so I would be looking for places where I could try and answer questions. And what one piece of advice do you have for listeners of this podcast? <laughs> I don't know. Um, curiosity, perhaps. Somebody once asked the Duke of Westminster what advice he'd give to a young entrepreneur. And he said, have an, entrepreneur, have an ancestor who was a good friend of William the Conqueror. Benedict Evans, thank you for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. 
References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.